Good morning. It is good to be here. Um, I will say uh, it's, it's nice that I don't have to try to think about how to say this in Spanish right now. And so I get to enjoy just preaching in my native tongue, English. And so in a second, we will read the text, and I will ask for you to stand up in just a second. But I want to share with you uh, something before we go there. And uh, if, if you want to, uh, the text will be Micah chapter 4. Um, I think it'll be on the screen. If not, you can look for it in your copy of God's Word. Um, and so as you're turning there, I'd like to share a little bit of my story. Um, uh, Philip reached out to me and he said, Alex, you know, I'm going to be uh, gone with my family this particular week. Would you mind sharing? And, uh, and as we talked, he, he, he kind of hinted at it. He's like, well, maybe you should share a little bit of your testimony. Um, which is true um, because we've been coming to the church a very long time. And about three years ago, we moved up to Pickens, um, and we worked at a camp up there, and we uh, found a local church up there to go to. And so, and then we are moved to Guatemala seven years ago to study, seven months, thank you, seven months ago to study Spanish. And um, so it's been three years since we've regularly attended this church. So there's a lot of new faces and so I think it would be appropriate for me to share a little bit of my testimony before we get started. And so um, I grew up in Fountain Inn um, at a very young age. We moved to this area when I was five years old. Uh, we lived on Cook's Bridge Road, way out in the sticks, in between kind of Woodruff, Gray Court, Fountain Inn. And uh, we started going to a little Baptist church out there called Durban Creek Baptist Church. Well, one Easter, my mom shared with me the gospel message, what Easter's all about, um, when I was five years old. And she shared, she said, you know, what we're celebrating this Easter is that God came in Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, and then he allowed himself to be tortured to death. And you deserve that death because of your sin against the holy God. And everyone who trusts in Him can be saved from their sins. So even at five years old, I understood that much. I said, yes, you know, I want to be saved. So uh, I was baptized. But unfortunately, it kind of stalled after that. I thought, I've got my tickets to heaven. I had, you know, what else do I need to do? And now we would go to church, and I would be convicted hearing preaching um, we then went to Fountain Inn First Baptist shortly after that, and I, I grew up in the church. But I wasn't living 100% for God. There would be passages um, in the Bible that said, those who persevere to the end will be saved. And I knew deep down, like, I wasn't persevering to the end. Like, yeah, I called myself a Christian, but I didn't really live like it. Maybe sometimes, on Sundays, Wednesday nights. But... Throughout the week, I wasn't living like a Christian. And so I met my wife. Fast forward, I met my wife, and uh, we got married. And, uh, you know, we would go to church. We even started attending here when this was a little church plant. Um, but deep down, I still had sins that I was hanging on to. I had, I had alcoholism. And, in fact, I, I kind of felt the call to go to the mission field at a younger age, but I didn't go. I didn't want to go on those short-term mission trips because I knew I couldn't have my sin, my pet sin. 
And, but God kept working on my heart. And I remember, I remember um, it was after a service. I can't remember. I, I, well, I guess it was like seven and a half years ago. I was um, in this service or in this building. And I remember crying out to God at the end of the preaching and saying, God, I can't stop drinking. Because like, I always thought, like, you know, I've got control of it. You know, it's fine. I can quit whenever I want to. But I would try. I tried to go, you know, a one a day. Well, the drinks kept getting just a lot bigger until it, it just went away. I kept trying to cut it back. And then, that, and then years and years of that, and even my wife saying, I think you have a problem, I realized I did have a problem. And I remember praying in here seven and a half years ago and crying out to God during an altar, altar call, just sitting in my seat, saying, God, I can't do this anymore. Please help me. Please help me. It wasn't right away, but about six months later, God broke me. God broke me. He got a hold of my heart. Actually, Nate Perry came and spoke that day. I do remember that. And that's, the, that's when I quit drinking for good. And I made a covenant with God never to touch it again as long as I live. And that's when I know I was saved. There's, and, and I wrestle with when exactly I was saved. And I can relate to an old Puritan writer. He said, I made a profession of faith at a young age, but the evidence of my salvation didn't come until later in life. And that's what happened to me. I made a profession of faith at a young age, but the evidence of my salvation. Because what does it say in the Bible? Like, how do you know you're saved? What does it say? What's that? Yes, fruits. That's right. And so... That's what it says. It doesn't say, well, look in, look in the back of your Bible. Did you, did you say a prayer one time and did you really mean it? That's not what it says in the Scriptures. It says, is there evidence of salvation in Peter, in James, in Matthew chapter 7? Not perfection, but evidence. Okay, Not perfection, but a new direction. A fully surrendered life. Because God is is our God. He's our King. We owe Him everything. Total allegiance. He made us. He created us. He loves us. He died for us. He deserves a lot more than our lives. But He can demand that of it. And I wasn't giving Him my whole life until He got me. And so He, he, he answered that prayer when I prayed to Him, God help me, I can't do this. Six months later, He did. He broke me. He disciplined me. See, before that time, if you asked me what my life verse would be, I'd say, well, it's uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll make your path straight. After that, my life verse is Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus speaking to the church. He says, those whom I love, I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So I was living in sin. But evidence that you're a Christian is that God will discipline you. See, if you're not a child of God, well, go after the world. And you're not going to be disciplined for it. You're not going to be convicted by it. But the child of God, he'll know, he or she will know deep down in their heart, I'm not, this isn't right. This isn't right. I don't need to be doing this. And God will let you go and call you mercifully. Repent. Come back to me. And if you don't, if you're stubborn, he'll discipline you like I was. 
And so there's a, I heard this from a radio preacher. I, I'm not sure exactly where he got it, but he said there's a custom in the Middle East where a good shepherd, if he has some lambs, and one will continue to run away, continue to run away. He says a good shepherd will take that lamb that keeps running away and break its leg. But then he'll carry that lamb for weeks and weeks until that leg heals. And once that leg heals, that lamb has grown so fond of the shepherd, he never wants to leave him again. That's what God did to me. He broke me and he carried me, and I never want to leave him again. There's nothing in this world worth going after compared to him. Everything else is plastic, a cheap joy that doesn't satisfy your soul. But God, Jesus Christ, is the one of living waters, the true water that satisfies the soul. So that's my story. And then, you know, after God really broke me and, and call it what you will, whether I got saved or um, truly uh, rededicated my life, that's when I started pursuing missions and going on short-term mission trips. And slowly, God kept calling like, I want you to do more. I want you to do more. Until it was like, you don't need to go for a short term. You need to go for a long term. And so we prayed about it as a family and continued to pray and seek God. And we went as a whole family on a short-term mission trip, prayed through that. And we're like, yeah, God's calling us to do this. So uh, we just finished six months, not six years, six months of language school in Guatemala. And uh, now, uh, the end of August, we will be flying to Mexico to partner with a ministry that's there in Mexico. Esperanza to continue to partner with them to build churches, to plant churches in areas where they don't have churches, and to encourage those struggling churches in areas, to start a seminary discipleship program for indigenous peoples, and we have a coffee business. It's our tent-making endeavor like the Apostle Paul did, uh, that we, Lord willing, want to use that to send other people as missionaries to other places in the world where coffee may grow and no churches are there. So that's in a nutshell what we're doing. Um, so yeah, let's look at Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Okay, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Micah, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall, end, shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn of war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church. Thank you that we get to come here and worship together in the singing, Father, but also in the preaching of your word. Father, please help me to say right things about you, to honor you with this time. Father, all things are yours, but we want to give you this time and pray that you are honored with it. Please help me, Father. Please help me. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Please be seated. So there's a a few reasons why I want to share this passage. Um, And before I get into that, I want to tell a story. While we were in Guatemala, we had the opportunity to partner with a ministry that several of y'all may be familiar with, The Master's Mission. Um, the Master's Mission does a lot of good things. They, they send help to Ukraine right now, and they've been sending short-term mission trips to Ukraine for 25 years now, I believe. Um, they also send joy boxes, little shoe boxes filled with toys for kids as a way to evangelize and encourage churches in Mexico. They also send teams to Guatemala to build houses. Guatemala's some of the poorest of the poor. Um, so we had a team that came down and uh, we were going to some of the villages to build a house and we needed a driver that particular day. So, excuse me. <clears throat> so that particular day, we hired a local in Panajachel. That was the name of the, vi- the town we were living in in Guatemala. And uh, we hired them and I'm riding with them. We're in the truck, we got all the tools in the back and we're driving, following the van, the gringos to the village. So I started talking to him, like, so hey, you know, we never met before, how you doing? We started talking, I said, so are you a Christian? He said, no, I'm a Buddhist. And so for me, like, we're in Guatemala, I just, you know, maybe for like China, I would expect that, we're in Guatemala, so this is interesting to me, plus I want to use this as a way to share the gospel with them. So I start talking to him, and I said, so really a Buddhist? I said, so why is that? And he, I kind of got his story, he grew up in a Christian home, at least his, his parents identified as Christians. Um, I think there was some, and this is me completely reading in between the lines, but it sounded like there were some horrible things that happened to him. And so he rejected Christianity altogether. And I said, so what do you have against Christianity, you know, as we were talking? He said, well, it's, it's full of lies. It's, it's about an angry God who kills people. And I said, well, actually, the Bible says God is love. Like, there is killing in it. I'm not going to deny that, but it also defines God as a God of love. He said, well, it only says that in the New Testament. Well, no one's ever said that to me before. I said, I don't know about that. So, a quick Google, and I found Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. It says God is love, New Testament and Old Testament. And uh, then he said, well, it's so antiquated. You don't need to believe that. that. It, it, it says that, uh, that women can't be doctors in the Bible. And I said, what? No, no. Like, no, it doesn't. Like, please tell me where that's at. And it simply just doesn't say that. Now, I share that story with you because he believed lies about the Bible. And this passage has to do with a mountain. Now, this is prophecy, but there, there are two mountains. Now, well, let me back up. This is talking about a mountain, and I believe this mountain here is talking about Christ and His kingdom and His church. And we'll get into that in a second. But on this, in this world, there's also another mountain, another kingdom. 
And that's the kingdom of Satan. Now, we see in the Bible how is his kingdom defined. Satan is the, the father of lies, is what it says. I believe in Corinthians. The great deceiver. I mean, we see in, in chapter 3, the first pages of our Bible, Satan said, does God really say that to tempt Adam and Eve? He's lying, twisting the truth. And I want us to understand, this is my whole message today. There's two mountains on this earth. There's the mountain of Christ, and there's the mountain of Satan. And the way he works is through lies, deception, deceiving. And as we go out, as God's people, we deal with those lies. That's something that we have to push back in the darkness. Now, this Buddhist that I met, he believed those lies. He embraced those lies. He wanted to believe those lies. He hated Christianity. And, yeah, so I wanted to share that story at the beginning to set it up as we look at this passage. Let's go to verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Okay, throughout the Bible, we see mountains for different things, okay? Uh, we see it as a way to connect to deities, bad ones, and good ones. We see it where uh, people would go up to the mountain to praise God, to worship God. Um, we also see it in prophecy as a way, as a kingdom, symbolic of a kingdom. And I'll show you this in another minor prophet, Daniel chapter 2. Okay, so Daniel chapter 2, we see King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, was the, the king of Bab uh, Babylon, and he had a dream, a dream that scared him. And he, uh, he demanded that one of his wise men show him what his dream was and what it meant. And well, the wise men couldn't do that because they couldn't read minds. And uh, so he said, well, I'm going to kill all the wise men. Well, Daniel heard about this. And Daniel prayed to God. And God showed Daniel what the vision was, what the dream was, and the meaning of it. Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I have the dream. And it's not because I'm so wise or so great. It's because my God is so great that I know this. So Daniel shares with him, What you saw, O king, is you saw a statue. A statue with a gold head, silver shoulders, a bronze stomach, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. Then in your dream, O king, you see a rock not cut by the hands of men come out of the sky, smash the feet of the statue, destroy the statue, and that rock starts to grow into a mountain that overtakes the entire world. Now we see Daniel doesn't stop there because then he tells the king what the meaning of the dream is. He said, this is essentially, and now I'm paraphrasing, he says, this is essentially a timeline. You, O king, are the golden head, but after you will come another kingdom of silver. And it's the Medes and Persians. We know this because we're looking back at history. After that will come bronze, Greece, Alexander the Great. Not this Alex, not this Alex, it's another Alex. We, we don't get confused. Um, so it will come him and then and then his kingdom will not last. After that comes Rome. <coughs> Legs of iron. 
but Rome will start to decay on itself. And then a rock, not cut by the hands of men, comes out of the sky, enters the timeline of human history, and starts His kingdom that's growing, that's going to take over the world. Jesus Christ is the rock not cut by the hands of men. He's entered the timeline. And it says, read your Gospels. It says a king has come. So what we say at Christmas time, King of kings, Lord of lords. It says the kingdom of God is at hand when Christ walked the earth. And His kingdom started. And we in this building and these people are a part of His kingdom. And we are far, far away from Jerusalem. We are a continent and an ocean away from where His kingdom started. And we are a part of it today. And I get to be a part of it in Mexico and go and push back the darkness a little bit further and grow that mountain. So that's what this mountain is talking about. Now, as we go forward, I want to say this and be clear. This prophecy is not 100% fulfilled yet. And this is prophecy. This is, this is peeking through at, behind the veil, symbolically, at things to come. But it's not, not here either. We get to be a part of this prophecy today. Verse 2, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His path, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What is the law? What is the word of the Lord? It's this right here. This literally is the law. They would refer to it as the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch is the law. But all of this is the word of God. We are a continent and an ocean away from Jerusalem. We are living in a partial fulfillment of this prophecy today. We have it in our own language. You know how many men like were burned to death, burned alive to get this in English? <coughs> William Tyndall and others? The work's not done. Conservatively, there's a little over 60 different languages just in Mexico. Indigenous peoples like Mayans, Aztecs, and a bunch of other different indigenous languages. Only conservatively, only about 20 of them have the, have the Bible in their language. The work's not done. The work's not done. We need to continue on. But we do live in a partial fulfillment of this. I wanted to share this passage with you today to show you your Old Testament's not dead. Like, it's alive. We get to be a part of it today. The church gets to be a part of it today. Also, what verse 2 is saying, it's saying, like, what should we use to teach us? What should we use to guide our lives? This is the Word of God. And that begs the question for me and us as God's people, how much, how much of our lives is being guided by this right here? How much of our lives, how much of our parenting? And hey, and I'm not saying this as somebody who's got it all figured out. Like, <laughs> I need these well as you may need them. 
but how much of our lives, how much of our parenting is guided by this right here? How much of our marriage is guided by this right here? We are called to submit all of our lives to the Word of God. Now, there's a, there's a, um, a phrase in um, church history called solo scriptura, and it's Latin for saying in Scripture alone. Now, it's not saying, we well, don't read a math book, only read your Bible. It's not saying that, but it is saying the guiding book, the guiding worldview for your entire life should be this right here. Now, to understand it better, we need to understand what happened. 500 years ago, the Catholic Church was saying, no, we don't guide our principles and the way we do things off of this book. They said we need to do it off of what the Pope said, what church history says, what our traditions say. And that's how we got to the place where you could, 500 years ago, you go to the Catholic Church and say, well, I sinned, let me pay you some money, pay it off. You could pay for sins for other people by paying it off. There's horrible things. That's why we had the Reformation. And Martin Luther wasn't trying to start new denominations. He was trying to get the church back to its purity. And, and that's where the term sola scriptura came out of. We can use other books. We can go to look at other books, but this should be the only one that's guiding how we live our lives. Every single ounce of what we do should be from right here. And we need to be asking that question. Sometimes we quickly just go do something without asking, what does God say in His Word about it? Like, this is life-giving. This is life-giving. The law is life-giving. The Ten Commandments are life-giving. And sometimes we think, I think subconsciously, we think, well, that's just antiquated. We don't need that. What and, 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 and I heard a pastor say this one time, and I really liked the way he said it. He said, what is it about the law that you hate so much, that's so antiquated? Don't commit murder? Is that so antiquated for us to understand? What's so antiquated? Don't commit adultery? No, we haven't evolved past this. This is what we need. The law is good and life-giving. It was from God Himself. We need to be going to the law, submitting our lives to His Scripture for everything in our lives. Also, I want to share this real quick because I think it, it goes back to that story I said at the beginning about the, the Buddhists who believed lies. See, out there in the world, and we grew up in the States, you probably grew up with these other worldviews. And worldviews is just the way people think who, are, who would think about the world in a different way, okay? So we live in a day and age where postmodernism reigns. Now, postmodernism, all that means is that you deny objective truth. So I'll explain it like this with an illustration. And you've seen it today. You cut on the TV and people will say, well, that's what works for you. That's your truth. That, if that truth works for you, just go with it. That you're, that's your truth. I've got my truth. That's postmodernism. And I'll explain it like this, um, why it doesn't work. Because there is such thing as absolute truth. There's such thing as real truth. Imagine you're about to fly to come visit me in Mexico. 
which I'll be super excited about. Um, you get in the plane and you see the dude filling it up with fuel. You're like, hey, is it, is it filled up? We're about to take off. You know, I don't want to crash. Do we have enough fuel in the tank? He says, well, what's full to me is not necessarily full to you. What's my truth is not necessarily your truth. You'd say, that's a bunch of baloney. No, there's an actual standard you can look at to see. How much more is that about the God of the universe? Like he is the definition of truth. His mountain, his kingdom is one of truth and light. This other kingdom is one of lies and darkness. Now, we have to go out into the world and push back the darkness. But we're called to do it with love. That's hard sometimes. Verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war anymore. So this, this obviously has not been fulfilled. We live in a day, an age of war. But there's a partial fulfillment here. And it has to do with the two types of mountains. What is Christ's kingdom, his mountain? It's, what, is, what is the captain of our salvation called? The prince of peace. The Lord of lords, the prince of peace. His kingdom will grow fundamentally different than all the other kingdoms of the world. All the other kingdoms of the world get by lying, by stealing, by killing, destroying, by taking, twisting the truth. That's, that's, I mean, just look at the news. Russia, Ukraine. I mean, that's how the other nations expand. Not this kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is one where, what did Jesus say? The greatest among you will be the greatest servant. He's the Prince of Peace. The captain of our salvation hung on a tree for his citizens. The king of this kingdom gave his life for you. I've heard one preacher say, we live between two great days. The day that Christ hung before all men and the day that all men will kneel before Christ. So this kingdom is here and it's growing and it's the Great Commission. It's the church. It's you if you're a child of God. And we get to go out with the message of truth and love and peace and push back the darkness. We don't grow our kingdom by killing and twisting the truth and lying. We do it through boldly proclaiming the truth in love. <clears throat> now, I don't, I don't, before we move on to this next verse, I really want to make this clear because I want us to see the Gospels here. This kingdom is the upside-down kingdom where the king gave his life. He hung on a tree. Now, this kingdom's growing. That means there's room inside this kingdom. And if you're not in this kingdom, you know deep down that you don't persevere to the end, that you don't care about giving God your entire life. There's room inside this kingdom. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Turn away from your sin. I was listening to uh, a YouTube video, Ray Comfort, and he used this illustration that I love. 
He said, like the man who falls overboard, carrying his gold, he's sinking to the bottom of the ocean. All he has to do is let it go to be saved, but he clings too tightly to what he cares more about. The very gold that he loves is killing him. It's the same with our sin. If we love it, it will kill us. Let it go. If my daughter was in here, she would just break out in song right now. Let it go. Sorry. Um, I've heard that like 20 billion times because I have a three-year-old daughter. Um, but, but it's true. Like, repent and believe. Let go of your sin. Trust in Christ. And it's important we say trust in Christ alone because you're watering down the gospel when you say you can be saved by something else. Like, if there was another way to get saved... Jesus, God in the flesh, being tortured to death was a waste of time. Jesus didn't waste his time. He did not waste his time. He knew who he was saving. And his blood is sufficient. And there's room in this kingdom. If you're not in this kingdom, repent and believe. Give your life to trust in Christ alone. Turn away from your sin. And there is love, there's joy, there's peace, there's reconciliation to a loving God who wants you in this kingdom. This kingdom grows not through killing, destroying, and lying. This kingdom grows, grows through love and peace and righteousness and truth. <clears throat> Verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Once again, this is not fully fulfilled, but it is partially fulfilled. And I'll explain this with a story. A story from, I'm doing math off the fly, which is dangerous, 1,700 years ago, give or take, in 328 A.D., In 328 A.D., in a city high in the icy mountains of Armenia, it was a bitterly cold winter. And in the middle of that winter, an order came from the Roman emperor that every man, woman, and child under the rule of his empire must bow down to him as a god. Now, there was a powerful force of Roman soldiers in that Armenian city known as the Thundering Legion. Their reputation as a powerful military force was well known throughout all of the Roman Empire. But the emperor was not satisfied with just their military service. He wanted each soldier to bow down to him. But when the time came for each soldier to bow down, 40 could not. They were faithful soldiers, but they were Christians. They could not obey the emperor's order to make him their god. They said, we can only worship the one true God. Well, when the word of these 40 soldiers refusing to bow down and worship him was received by the emperor, his command back was simple. Bow down to me, reject your Christian God, or die. But the 40 soldiers did not bow down. So the decision was made that they would die. But how should they die? Should they be fed to hungry lions? Should they be burned at the stake? These were both horrible, terrible ways to die. But even a more cruel death was prescribed, that they should be frozen to death in the bitter, cold winter. So they took the 40 soldiers to a frozen lake in the middle of a terrible winter storm. They stripped them of all their clothing and left them to freeze to death. 
But the general in charge did not want to lose these 40 good soldiers. He said, simply bow down to the emperor and save your life. But they would not. The other soldiers taunted and laughed at them, saying, Soon you'll be back. You'll bow down. But the laughing stopped when these 40 Christians bravely walked barefoot across the icy, freezing lake. Well, through the night, the other soldiers lit a fire and cooked food to tempt the Christians to give up. But the Christians prayed to God to make them brave that they began to shout, Here die 40 men for Christ. The freezing, bitter cold night went on until finally the cold was too much for one of the men. He staggered back to the fire and agreed to denounce his God, to bow down to the emperor. But the remaining 39 Christians would not give in, even though they were literally freezing to death. Then amazingly, something happened that they could not believe. One of the Roman soldiers sitting by the fire, having watched the bravery and courage and faith of these dying Christians, stood before the general and uttered these words, I will take that man's place. I will be a Christian. As the general watched in amazement, this Roman soldier removed his clothing and walked onto the icy lake to join the other 39. Well, the Roman soldiers sat by the fire all night long, and the last thing they said they could remember hearing through the howl of that terrible freezing winter storm was now 40 Christian men shouting, Here die 40 men for Christ. In the morning, sadly, there were 40 frozen bodies, men who had sacrificed and died for their faith and believe in Christ. <clears throat> That's what it looks like today. No one shall make them afraid. What do you fear? I ask this to myself. What do we fear? Are we living in fear for the kingdoms of this world? Because there's only one king to fear, and that's Jesus Christ. And he loves you. We shouldn't live in fear of other kingdoms. We should be like these 40 men. We have one king. He's ruler of everything. We'll follow laws. We'll be good citizens. But ultimately, we don't live in fear. We have our king, and we submit to him. Verse 5. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, lowercase g, God. But we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. See, these Roman soldiers didn't follow these lowercase g gods. They didn't follow the lies that this Roman emperor declared that he was a god. They didn't follow and live in fear of these other things. They belonged to the one true kingdom. <clears throat> now, there's two kingdoms today. And I want to share this, this story from uh, World War II history that I think is helpful and understanding the dynamic that we live in today. Okay, D-Day. It's when the U.S. attacked Europe. It's when the tides changed in the war, World War II. Before D-Day, it looked like Hitler would reign and win in, in, in Europe. After D-Day, every single one of Hitler's generals came to him and said, you can't win this war. You can't win it. It's just not possible. What did Hitler do after D-Day? 
He said, well, it's been a big misunderstanding. I'm sorry, guys. I'll get out of here. No. He actually killed more Jews after D-Day. He became more evident how wicked and vile he truly was as his end approached. It's the same today. Satan's kingdom, the father of lies, his kingdom's dwindling. It will be destroyed completely one day. And until that day, he will fight and he will become more evident and more true or more, yeah, more evident that he is only fit for destruction. That he is only going to be worse and worse and worse to the bitter end, just like Hitler. And so we, we do face that. And I hate to get political, but don't we see that today with Roe versus Wade being overturned? I mean, the kingdom of darkness is being exposed. People love the darkness. They want to be able to kill. They want to be able to murder babies. And some of them don't even... Like, it would be reasonable to go to a scientific, like, well, let's look at science. But they're not, a lot of them aren't going there. They're just saying, no, we want to kill babies. And they hate the fact that that's being stripped from them. And they're kicking and screaming, wanting that to continue. Sorry to go political, but we can see it in our day and age as that kingdom of darkness is being pushed back. A little bit more. So, as I'm closing, I want to tell one more story. I'm sorry if I've gone a little long today, um, but I want to tell one more story from Guatemala about these two kingdoms and the kingdom of darkness and lying and the kingdom of Christ and the Great Commission. While we were in Guatemala, uh, we had the opportunity to partner with a local ministry and church to plant a church in a village that didn't have any churches. And the ministry we were partnering with, um, they asked me when we had about two months left, they said, hey, will you, will you teach us? We've got a set in our schedule on Tuesdays. We usually have somebody come teach us, and the person who's doing it can't do it right now. Would you mind teaching us you know, for these last five weeks? And I said, well, let's study James. And, uh, and so we got five chapters in James. We can do that every week. And I'll never forget, we were teaching, I was teaching through the chapter, a chapter in James, chapter three, and we were talking about why slander and gossip are so wicked. It's because that sin is against another person made in the image of God. Okay? Like slander. Like, we, we know murder, adultery is horrible, but we never talk about gossip and slander, like how horrible they are. And they are horrible, and God hates them because you're saying evil things about somebody who's made in the image of God. You're trashing somebody who's made in the image of God. It's why we don't believe in abortion, because that human life is in the image of God. That's also why, before we moved up to Camp McCall, we had this awesome dog. I love this dog. And he had bone cancer. We had to put him down. And like, I legit like cried because I love this dog so much. But then I asked the question, why is it okay? Like I knew deep down, like this dog's suffering. His, his end of his life's approaching and there's no way that we can get him treatment. The right thing to do is to put him down. Like I knew that deep down. But that would be horrible if I said that about grandma. 
Like, that would be just horrible. That would be wicked. Why is it? It's because people are made in the image of God. Even us suffering on our deathbed, bearing the image of God is more important than that temporary suffering. The image of God. That's why slander and gossip are horrible. You're trashing somebody made in the image of God. I'll never forget this. One of the girls there, she said, so would it be like, is it bad if I say bad stuff about myself? See, and as a guy, I never would have thought about this. And so I responded to her. I was like, so are you made in the image of God? And she obviously is. See, there's two types of people in every congregation. There's one that needs to be hit in the head theologically with a two-by-four, and that's me. Like, I need to be shaken awake. Like, your sin's horrible. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ. There's other people who already feel that weight. They feel, they're already struggling. They feel the weight of their sin. They need to hear how much God loves them and cares about them. They need to stop telling lies about themselves to themselves. We need to be battling lies out there about our God, but we also need to be battling lies in here about what we say about us, ourselves, who are made in the image of God. I'm closing now. I want to ask you, what lies are you believing? What lies do we need to go out there and battle with boldness but in love? What lies are we believing about ourselves? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your kingdom growing, that we get to be a part of it with the Great Commission, going out to grow your kingdom through the proclamation of your word, declaring to all men that there's one king worth serving. There's only one king worth submitting to, and that's Christ our King. Please give us the strength, the love, the boldness to go out there and declare how great you are, O King the Savior of peoples, the Savior savior of sinners. Please help us, Father. Father, I pray as we go into um, the opening up the altar, Father, that if anybody here knows they're not in that kingdom, that needs to repent, that needs to just rededicate their life, Father, pray that you would work in their heart. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this church. In Christ's name I pray, amen.